Thanks, Dave. Morning, everybody. Great to see all your faces. Uh, Kath and I were watching a, uh, a box set last night. I won't distract you by mentioning which box set it was and get you thinking about the particular TV series, but suffice it to say that one of the things that kept happening in this particular episode was that the action would pause and restart and uh, it would take a few seconds to realize what was happening sometimes, but what was happening was there was a flashback happening. So the, the same place, the activities that was taking place, the action was taking place was actually like 20 years before. And it took a bit of getting used to um, until you were dialed in sort of 10 minutes into the episode and realized, okay, this is another flashback happening here. The action's been paused in the present day and it's gone back to the past day. And you've probably found that a lot of books you read, a lot of TV and films you watch do exactly that. There's a pause in the action to put some extra information to go back and say, you need to remember this. As if the extra information gets put in brackets. That's basically what was happening in this TV series we were watching last night. And actually, that's basically what's happening here in Revelation chapter seven. We've seen the scene set in chapters four and five in the throne room of heaven. Then in chapter six, we've seen the action begin as Jesus begins to the lamb begins to break open the seals on this scroll that contains God's plans for the universe. And then we get to chapter seven and basically the action is paused and chapter seven is like extra information in brackets as if the Lord is saying to John and to us, before we go any further, I need to show you this. One of the reasons we know that's happened is that I don't know if you clocked this last time or not, but we didn't actually get the seventh seal, did we? We got seals one through to six then we jump to chapter seven and we haven't actually seen the seventh seal yet. That's because before the seventh seal comes, we need to see and understand and feel this extra information. So chapter seven is giving John and us more information that we need. And actually not just giving us more information is actually answering a question posed at the end of chapter six. And that question is, for the great day of their wrath, that's the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb, has come and who can withstand it that's the question who can withstand this coming wrath of the lamb well chapter seven starts to answer that question well you might think in answer to that question who can stand who can withstand in the day of the wrath of the lamb the answer must be no one well no one can withstand the wrath of god and the wrath of the lamb this is the god we've seen earlier in revelation who is described as holy 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 three times holy this is the holy, the pure, the, the spotless God, and all human beings are sinners. So how on earth can anybody stand? But actually, chapter 7 gives an unexpectedly positive answer. There is a group of people who can stand. Stand in all the tribulations that have been described in chapter 6, and even stand on that great day, the day of the wrath of the Lamb, when Jesus returns. There is a group of people. And chapter 7 shows us who that group of people are. Now, at first glance, when you look at chapter seven, it looks like two groups. Some of you, by the end of this morning, might still be convinced there are two groups and uh, want to be sending in questions for the podcast or arguing with me in a breakout group over coffee. But I'm saying that um, there's one group here. I believe that's the, the correct interpretation of chapter seven. Not two groups, but one group of people viewed from different angles. Let's see if I can persuade you of that as we go through. And that group of people is the church. And the two different angles we see are, first of all, in verses one to eight, the church struggling. 
And then in verses 9 to 17, the church celebrating. So that's what we're going to see this morning. And I hope there's some challenge and encouragement for us all in this. First of all, the church struggling, then the church celebrating. So first of all, the church struggling, verses 1 to 8. Well, hang on, you might say. Your first objection arises at this point. It says there's 144,000 people named and sealed here. Surely there are more Christians than that in the world throughout history, more than 144,000. Well, yes, of course, that's the case. But remember, our understanding of Revelation, our approach to it is that it is basically and primarily symbolic. The symbolism speaks of real historical truths and spiritual realities, but it's heavily symbolic. So when you get a number like 144,000 that is suspiciously round and suspiciously exact, with 12,000 people exactly in each of the tribes that are mentioned here, that should tip us off that this is symbolic language and the number is a symbolic number. This is more, this is more art than it is maths, with apologies to the maths teachers listening right now. This is more art than maths. Think about how that number is made up. 144, first of all, is 12 times 12. We've seen 12 and 12 added together previously in Revelation. This time they're times. And 12 and 12 speaks of the people of God in Old and New Testaments, Old and New Covenants. So 12 and 12 gives us 144 times 1,000 to make it a big number. So the idea of the 144,000 here is not that it's literally 144,000 people. It's that in God's mind, it's an exact number and also that it's a large number. So hopefully that deals with that potential objection that if this is all Christians, how come it's just 144,000? It's symbolic. Hang on, you might say another objection. You said, Matt, this is speaking of the church. The text quite clearly says the tribes of Israel. Well, a couple of things to say in response to that. I realize I've got to try and clear some of this out of the way. So you're going to even give me a, a hearing as I go into the rest of the chapter. What about the tribes of Israel? Well, first thing to say is quite clearly in this first part of chapter seven, this is God protecting his people, the servants of God, as they're called there, the servants of God. And as you read through Revelation, what you see is that those who serve God are not just those from national Israel, though it does include them, but people from every tongue and tribe and nation, as we're going to see in the second part of chapter seven. All God's people are pictured here, not just Israelites. Another thing to add is when you, you read through the Old Testament and you read all the lists of the 12 tribes of Israel, you won't find a list in the Old Testament that matches this list. In this list, there is no tribe of Dan, for example. He just gone, just disappeared, possibly because it's a tribe associated with idolatry. What you've got instead is Joseph listed there, which doesn't normally happen in the lists of tribes. And Judah, for example, who doesn't appear at the top of the list in the Old Testament. The tribe of Judah appears at the top of this list. I, three guesses as to why that is. It's because Jesus, of course, is the lion of the tribe of Judah. So this list of Old Testament tribes has been adjusted and tweaked quite heavily when it appears here in chapter 7. So this doesn't look exactly like Old Testament lists of national Israel. Let me chuck in another few facts to see if this persuades you. The other thing we should bear in mind is that, of course, the 10 tribes of Israel, the, the northern tribes, were basically lost to history by this point anyway, and people couldn't identify where they were. And in Revelation and in the wider New Testament, 
here's a, a, a really influential fact for me as I look at this list of the 12 tribes. In the New Testament generally, Old Testament language is so often used, it's used again and again to describe not national Israel, but the New Testament church made up of people from Jews and Gentiles, from every tongue and tribe and nation. So this list isn't a list of the actual 12 tribes. It's a symbolic way of representing the church. You remember that Paul said to the church that they were Abraham's descendants, according to the promise. Remember in 1 Peter, that Peter keeps picturing the church as a kingdom of priests, as a royal priesthood, as the temple. Old Testament language in the New is so often used to describe the New Testament church. And that's what's been pictured here. You compare the next section of Revelation 7, we'll come on to in a moment, and what you see is there that the multitude, the great multitude pictured there, which clearly speaks of the church, is spoken of as fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. There are, there are verses there from Isaiah that are alluded to. The church, the great multitude, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies to national Israel. One last fact to chuck in before I move on is this. When you look at chapter 14 of Revelation, the 144,000 are mentioned again there. And in chapter 14, they very much have an international flavor. So I'm saying that the best understanding of this first part of chapter 7 is that this represents the church. People who believe in Jesus, who belong to the Lamb from every age and every generation and every nation. And in the first part of chapter seven, this is the church facing the four horsemen of chapter six, facing the tribulations and struggles of history. Facing what it means to live in a fallen world under God's judgment. And in chapter seven, this first part of chapter seven, this church struggling in this fallen world is wonderfully being sealed by God being kept safe and secure in their faith in the face of the four horsemen and the persecutions and trials and tribulations that go along with living in this fallen world. So in chapter six, when you read the word seals, that makes you think of judgment, doesn't it? Because it's, it's Jesus opening the scroll and bursting the seals to bring about God's plan of judgment. But in chapter seven, wonderfully, in contrast, when you read the word seal, it's not talking about judgment. Now it's talking about salvation. Think about what it means in our context today, and especially in ancient times, what a seal stood for. A seal denoted ownership and authenticity. So when God says that believers struggling in this fallen world are sealed, he's saying that they are given a mark of ownership and authenticity that says this person, these people are mine. They are genuinely mine. They belong to me. Isn't that a wonderful thought, Christian? You can't see the mark on yourself. You can't physically see any mark on me. But if you have trusted Jesus, you are sealed in the sight of heaven as owned by God, authentically being one of his people. And seals also protected the thing that they were sealing. A seal also said, this is my property. Do not touch and this seal in the first part of Revelation 7 is saying to a fallen world and to the devil, you might put these people through suffering and persecution and trial, but you cannot touch them. You cannot touch their souls. You cannot have them. 
the, the war, the famine, the accidents, the persecution, the diseases, all those things listed in chapter six may well afflict God's people as they live in this fallen anti-God, anti-church world, but his people are sealed and spiritually protected in the face of all these things. You might think, well, you know, that spiritual protection is great, Matt, but I'd like some physical protection, please, or some financial protection in this hard world right now. Well, God is not indifferent to those things, but what he is speaking of here is something far more important. Haven't you ever found yourself in the position, and maybe this morning you find yourself in this position where you're thinking, things are so hard right now, this life is so hard right now, this world is so hard, I'm not sure I can keep believing in the face of this particular thing, this particular situation. Revelation chapter 7, this first part, speaking of the 144,000, says to you, you can stand. You will hold on because you are sealed, because you are a true child of God, having trust in Jesus, and you bear the seal of Almighty God, which is invisible to you, maybe, but it is visible to heaven. See, what Revelation keeps doing time and time again is forcing us to think about what really matters. And what really matters is not my comfort or my health. As important as those things are, what really matters is that I belong to God. What really matters is that you are protected spiritually from everything that would try and keep you from eternity with Jesus the Lamb. I know some of you in recent days and months have struggled, as we all have at some time, in your faith, wondering, do I really believe? Can I really hold on? This tells you if you have simply trusted in Jesus and are clinging on to him, even if by your fingertips, that shows that you are sealed, child of God. Paul said to the Ephesians that the Holy Spirit is the seal guaranteeing our inheritance. It's the same basic idea here. When Paul says to the Romans in chapter 8, what shall separate us from the love of God? The obvious answer being nothing is the same truth being spoken of here. When Jude says that he commits the church there to the one who will keep them from falling, that is the idea here in Revelation chapter 7. Christians, you are sealed. This is what God sees when he looks at the church struggling in this world. The world sees a largely weak, unimpressive bedraggled band of people meeting weekly, singing their songs, believing their book, struggling, suffering. But God sees a sealed people belonging to him. So important that we keep seeing our lives from a God's eye point of view and revelation helps us to do that. So that's what the 144,000 stands for, the church struggling, what the old-fashioned theologians used to call the church militant, fighting in this world. That's what the 144,000 stands for. But maybe you're asking a question right now. All right, if that's the church, how then can a holy God, a holy, holy, holy God, seal and protect these people from falling away and from judgment if they are sinners like the rest of mankind? If you've been around Christians long enough, you know they're as bad as anybody else. So how can they stand in the day of the wrath of the Lamb? How can they know that they're safe and sealed? Well, we start to get the answer when we move on to the second part of the chapter. And our second point this morning as the action flips now to a different camera angle, if you like. 
as we see now the church celebrating. We've seen the church struggling, now we see the church celebrating. Or if, if you want to use the, the uh, again, the old-fashioned theological term, the church triumphant. John says in his vision, after this, I looked. And as he looks, what he sees is this great multitude from every nation, tribe, people and language with white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. Did, did anything about that like trigger anything or ring a bell for you thinking back on the previous chapters? John has heard the 144,000 speak spoken about. And then we read, after this, I looked and he looks and he sees a great multitude. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound a bit like Revelation chapter five? Do you remember what happened there? Where John hears the lion of the tribe of Judah being spoken about. And as he hears about the lion of the tribe of Judah, he turns and he looks and he sees a lamb. So Jesus has been spoken of and then he turns and sees Jesus, but from a different angle with different imagery. And that's what's happening here regarding the church. John has heard about the 144,000. Now he turns and looks and he sees a great multitude. So just as chapter five gives us different angles on Jesus, this chapter gives us different angles on the church. This multitude from every nation in white robes, celebrating with palm branches, which in the Old Testament, intertestamental period speak of victory and celebration, He's seeing the church again, but this time, not the church on earth struggling, but the church in heaven celebrating. They've now, these Christians, believers, lamb followers in heaven, they've now left behind the great tribulation of the church on earth in every generation, and their eternal worship has begun. Can I just say, and feel free to pepper us with questions on the podcast about this one, but when it says great tribulation there, what has been spoken of is not a period of end time suffering a few years before the new heavens and the new earth come into being. The great tribulation there is speaking of the whole church age as the church suffers and goes through tribulation. I, I do happen to believe that there will be a short period at the end of history where the suffering will be particularly intense, where the man of lawlessness and the Antichrist will show his face. But I don't think that's what's been spoken of here. The great tribulation is the suffering of the church in every generation and in every age. If you look back in Revelation in the in the ESV, the English Standard Version, you'll see that the, the word tribulation has cropped up four times already. And it's speaking about what the seven churches are going through. So the church here in the second part of chapter seven is the church in heaven celebrating because they've now got to glory and they've been brought out of this time, this age of suffering. And most wonderfully, maybe for some of us more than others this morning, but this should be wonderful for all of us. Wonderfully, what this shows us is that this is what believers who have died in Jesus, died believing in him, are experiencing right now. Sunday, 29th of November, 2020. They're experiencing this now. It's a foretaste of what all the church of God will experience one day in the new heavens and new earth. But those who have died and gone to glory experience this now. It's as if Jesus is saying to the seven churches and to us and every generation in between, one day the fight, the tribulation, 
will be done and you will be around my throne singing and safe and serving me and sheltered. No more tears, no more fears. Again, if you've been tracking with who this great God is, you, you might still be asking the question, but how is this possible to be in the presence of this holy God? Well, the answer is, as it tells us there towards the end of chapter seven, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. They are there celebrating. It is possible for them to be there in the presence of the holy God and the holy lamb because they've washed their robes white in the blood of the lamb. It's a startling image, isn't it? If you come to this for the first time ever, you'd be thinking that image doesn't make any sense. You can't wash robes white in blood. That's gross. But it's meant to make us think of Jesus, the sacrificed lamb and his cross and the paradox that his horrible death leads to purity and sinlessness and forgiveness for those who trust in him. Those who have washed their robes in the blood of the lamb have this experience when they die. This is what we as believers have to look forward to in Jesus. And because of what Jesus has done at the cross, if we only believe that he's done it for us. Which kind of answers another question that might crop up in our minds. How do I know that I am in this great multitude? How do I know that I am one of the 144,000? How do I know that I have been sealed? I think these truths are great, but how do I know they apply to me? Well, the answer is a really, really wonderfully simple one. You know it's you because you have come to Jesus in faith. And by faith, you have washed your robes, so to speak, in his blood. You have said in some fashion, at some time, in some way, I really believe, Lord Jesus, that you died on the cross and shed your blood for me to be my lamb and to be my shepherd. And Christian, friend, if you have done that, even if you whether you can point to a particular day in the calendar or not, if you have done that, you have received these white robes because you've received God's justification, his verdict that you are not guilty in his sight because of Jesus' death on the cross. And you also know that one day you will receive white robes of glorification and celebration when you meet with the angels and the living creatures and this great multitude around the throne to worship the Lamb. Do you believe this is true? If you believe this is true, and it's, it's a struggle some days, I know, but if you believe this is true, this changes everything transforms all of life however difficult it might be at times it reminds you that those who have died in jesus are far more alive than us right now you know we tend to think of them as gone and yeah we, we know that they they still exist they're with the lord but no do you know what they they're far more alive than us because they are celebrating like this their victory celebrations have begun their suffering is done there are no more tears for them now God himself, what a wonderful image. At the end, right at the end of that chapter, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Those who have gone to glory ahead of us have had their tears wiped away and they have no need of tears anymore. They are finally in the presence of the great shepherd. But what about you still in the church, struggling, the church militant in this world right now? Do you weep today? Well, one day your tears, tears will be no more either. There will be no need of them for you either even though there is right now 
So chapter seven of Revelation, I'm sure you'll agree with me on this, even if you don't agree with me on the details, is saying to us, Christian, look up. This is the perspective you need in worry. This is the perspective you need in sickness. This is the perspective you need in struggle. Christians, we need to remember that as we join in worship this morning, wishing we could be together, singing together, but instead singing together in our living rooms on Zoom, we are reminded we join this great multitude around the throne in worship right now. And we are reminded that we will join this worship perfectly and fully one day. Our present day fitful on and off experience of the presence and love of God will be made permanent and continuous and wonderful. And this is all centered on and it's all because of the Lamb Jesus who shed his blood for us. Our robes have been washed white. This is our future. And this changes our perspective on everything. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to lift you up now in our prayers and again in our worship and say thank you. Thank you that because of all that you have done, because of the work of your Father, Lord Jesus, because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us, we as your people who have simply fled to Jesus and rested on him and trusted in him, we are sealed and safe, even in this hard, hard world. And because of that safety and because of that sealing, we know that we have this experience of pure and full and unrestrained and unending joyful worship to look forward to that cannot be taken away from us. We praise you and I ask God as we close our time of worship this morning, as we chat in our breakout rooms later on, that heaven will be made very, very real to us as a, as a present reality and as a future reality for us when we die to go be and go and be with you. Thank you for our hope, Lord. Thank you for the good news, for the gospel. And may it burn in our hearts today and change our attitude to everything we face. For your namesake, Lord Jesus, we pray these things. Amen.